Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Hi, Matt. Uh, this is Alex Black, President, CEO, and Founder of Rio2. We've got the largest undeveloped gold oxide heap leach project in the Americas, located in Chile. It currently contains 5 million ounces of gold at a $1,500 gold price in the M&I category and 1.4 million ounces of gold in the inferred category. It was discovered back in 2010 uh, by a previous company, Atacom Pacific, who we acquired back in 2018. And here we are on our way to building uh, or turning Phoenix Gold into a gold mine in the next uh, 18 months. And he's back. Alex Black is back in the room. Hello, Alex. How are you? Yeah, I'm very good, thanks. I'm, I'm sitting here in, in Miami uh, getting the family vaccinated. As you know, I live in Peru. Uh, I've been vaccinated because I'm an old bastard and, uh, you know, we, we, we were in the line to, 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 us old people were in the line to get the vaccination, but the rest of my family wasn't. So we flew up to Miami, been here a few weeks, doing a double dose of Pfizer and uh, it's a different world. I mean, um, uh, Miami and uh, Peru, the protocols are completely different. It's out of control here in the US um, and uh, we're trying to stay away from as many COVID hotspots that we can. I mean, um, it's not going away, that's for sure, in, in, in the US. Yes, it's... it's we better be careful. I don't want to. I don't want to get in a conversation about politics <laughs> with you. Uh, certainly not North uh, American politics. Um, well, like I hope you hope your family uh, get the injections and you know stay safe while you're up there. Um, we haven't spoken since the beginning of the year, end of last year, possibly even. Um, obviously, I wanted to find out what's going on. Saw the headline. You've put together a structure by which you can get the project financed. It's uh, it's it's complicated, and. It's also late. So what's been happening? How did you get to this point? Well, I'd, I'd like to come back to your point about complicated. It's not really complicated. It's pretty vanilla, which I, I, <laughs> I was saying all along the way, I didn't want to do a vanilla deal, but here I am doing a vanilla deal, uh, which is you know equity, stream, and uh, senior secured debt. So it's pretty, pretty straightforward. It all dovetails into each other. Yes, we're six weeks late. You know, I've been kicked in the butt by um, by some shareholders and who've been giving me grief. You know, when's it coming? When's it coming? When's it coming? You know, wow. You know, we we looked and we looked at all sorts of options and uh, different ways of doing this. Um, you know, I was talking about doing an internal foreign asset income trust. Uh, you know, we looked at the vanilla options uh, and. Let me tell you, this was the best possible deal that we could come up with. Why, why do you say that? Why do you say that? Because you were looking at a completely different type of structure, which would have been unique. i give you that. Why couldn't that get over the line? Okay, the Foreign Asset Income Trust involved doing a listing of a, of a new trust. And it was, was very similar to the concept of a REIT, um, a real estate investment trust. And REITs are very common. And you can do a Foreign Asset Income Trust listed in Canada with assets off outside of Canada. So we did a lot of work with, and, and the guy that birthed this whole concept was a guy that's become 
a, a good friend of mine, even though we were, because of COVID, we haven't seen each other very much apart from on, on, on a virtual world. But Doug Pollock from Pollock Co. Doug um, came up with this idea. He sat me down 12 months ago and said, what do you think? And I said, mm, sounds interesting. And worked with his lawyers. We worked it up. We did it, you know, did a lot of stuff on spec. Doug did a lot of work on spec. And uh, we got the structure mapped out. But then, you know, there was a, a few unknowns. We had some very interesting names in a, an initial book for the trust, but we didn't have a full book. And so the unknown was going forward without a full book and who would fill that book. So that's always the risk with any IPO, IPO that you do. Second thing was it was going to take us about three months from go to woe to, to get it put together. And, and, you know, we being a one asset company, it, it just didn't, it just didn't suit us. And uh, we would have loved, my board and myself would have loved to have pulled the trigger on it and, and gone that way, but we decided to save it for another day. And, um, and if we do acquire another company, another asset with a foreign uh, asset, I think we'll give it a go. It'll be the first time it's ever done. Um, and that's the other thing. Serial number one is always very difficult and very scary um, if, you're, if you don't have anything else. If we had three or four other assets um, in production or whatever, we would have easily done it. But um, anyway, that's what happened. And, and as you know, we ran a process with Scotia Bank as our advisor. We had all the streamers, all the um, royalty companies uh, in the room, you know, looking at our project. And uh, at the end of the day, we settled with wheat and precious metals. And I've got to tell you, I mean, you know, you know, I've been around, I'm, I'm a technical guy, I'm a mining engineer. Wheaton, by a mile, has the best technical in-house team of any streamer. That's from Franco Nevada below, right? And that was where we hit it off because we could talk to their people on a technical basis and they got it, right? And that's the thing about this transaction. Maybe not the preferred transaction, but it was, you know, in second place. We've got the validation of one of the biggest streaming companies in the world, Wheaton Precious Metals, who really love this project. Secondly, we've got the validation of BMP Paribas, who are a big international bank who do a lot of business in LATAM, and they love this project. And so second prize was pretty good because we've got two, two major groups to validate what we're doing in Chile. And as you know, there's been all sorts of people trying to find holes in everything that we do, <laughs> we've been trying to do. Um, but uh, we've got those two guys as partners. So, so there, there, were there two options on the table? Is that what you're saying? Or were there multiple options or multiple ver oh, no, there versions were other of option two? There were, there were other streamers. There was other senior secured routes that we could have gone. Um, uh, we looked at it. The reason we're going for a streamer, just to be clear to everybody, if Rio 2 had a $2, $3 share price, we would have done most of this in equity, right? And done the senior secured at the end. But we didn't have that luxury. So the option was blow your brains out in dilution, issue a lot of equity, 
don't worry about a stream, but I'm sure we just would have blown the whole structure of the company out. So um, that's why we took the stream. The other reason we took the stream is we're building this very unconventionally. We're building it in a staged fashion. We're not waiting to the construction permit to build things. Um, that's when the senior secured facility comes in is when we get our construction permit. But before then, we're going to, at our infrastructure site, which you know that we uh, have 22 kilometres away from the mine site, we're going to be fabricating stuff. We're going to be building our camp. We're going to be, uh, you know, getting the plant ready. Plants and ADR plants, pipes, tanks, pumps. It's very simple. So we can fabricate that, have it all lined up and staged at our infrastructure site ready for assembly, not for construction, but assembly when we get our construction permit. The other thing we can do is using the permitting system that's available to us in Chile, we can get a jump on some of the civils and, and foundation work that we need to do at the mine site before we get our construction permit. Now, people might be thinking, how are you gonna do this? Well, don't forget, Wheaton and BMP understand our strategy. They have, sat with us and done quite a bit of DD on our strategy and have said, yes, that looks pretty interesting. You're on the right track and we're willing to back you. See, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this. I'm interested in the, the decision-making, these forks in the road where you've had to you know, make a call one way or the other because nothing's ever black or white. It's not 100%. This is the, the best solution. It's, it's, the, it's the best of several options that we have on, on, on the table, or it's the best at this stage in terms of decision making. So I know BHP, I mean, their diligence process is, you know, off the charts. They are risk averse. If you kind of get through a BHP diligence process, you've done well. But, you know, so I've got to ask the question, where it's like, none of this is finalized yet, is it? Well, well, it is and it isn't. I mean, you know, the way these processes work, um, for example, our stream with Wheaton, they would have preferred to wait for definitive agreements. What's that? That's just a lot of legal stuff. You know, we've, we've, we've determined the terms. The terms were outlined in the press release that went out the other day. Um, the terms are outlined, but all the legal work that goes with it is going to take, I don't know, a few more weeks. So rather than wait for that time, we said, well, okay, let's go with a non-binding term sheet, which they agreed to, and let's, let's get this out there, right? Let's get this out there while we're doing the papering. So there's no risk it's not going to happen. Now, with, with BMP, BMP is an indicative uh, proposal to us, and they will be engaged to do DD between now. I, I mean, they've done quite a bit of DT, DD, but they want to finish their technical DD between now and and uh, and and uh, sort of middle of next year, uh, so twelve months, uh, whereby they go firm on a term sheet. Right now, we've got an indicative term sheet. Uh, the terms haven't been uh, put out there because it's not material because nothing we've entered into, um, uh, and and it looks pretty good. So it'll be very vanilla. It's LIBOR plus something else. It's not uh, a convert right? It converts a dilution. So there's no more dilution that we have to do in relation to this project. It's, it's, it's pure vanilla debt, uh, which will be liable plus a, a you know, single digit percentage above that. Okay. So let me, let me be clear because I think it's important. The, 
the non-binding agreement was at your behest, not Wheaton's. So they wanted to do a deal first, then they make an announcement. You said, no, let's let's get this going. We, we'll deal with the admin later. Is that because you're under a bit of pressure because it was already five, six weeks behind what you where you thought you'd be? Well, exactly. We're, we're about six weeks late, so I apologise for that, but that's just the way it is. And, uh, yeah, you know, time pressure was on us. And, and we needed we needed really to top up our, our equity. Um, we're, we're running on fumes, which is which is the way we like to run things. We don't have big expenditures. We're in the middle of the EIA uh, review process, which is going very well. No red flags. Um, and we're in the second, uh, second phase of uh, observations. Um, you know, we're, we're guiding that EIA approval will be given February, March next year. Um, you know, and, and people have been asking me what's the biggest risk or concern that I have about this project. And it's really one thing, one word, and it's COVID. COVID is the unknown thing that's out there. And as everybody knows, COVID has hit Latin America very hard. It's hit Peru particularly hard where I live. Um, it's hit Chile hard. Um, and the international borders have been closed to Chile since the 1st of April and are planned to be closed until the end of July, which is only a week or so away. Uh, now we're hoping that they open. Um, once again, doesn't hasn't constrained us because we're in the EIA process. We've got a team on the ground in Chile, so it's no problem. You know, we've got a technical team in Peru. Um, but when we when we start entering into the construction phase, obviously we want some flexibility to come in and out of the country. The people building the project will obviously be Chileans, but with our oversight. So um, COVID is the big unknown. I don't know how that's going to impact. I think I think Doug Ramshaw and, and what he's doing in, in Mexico, probably Akiba Leishman with what he's doing in Nicaragua, they've been hit as well by COVID delays, et cetera. I, I just can't foresee that. Um, we are learning from delays that other people have had about how to try and mitigate those delays, but that's our biggest uh, concern is COVID, the impact of COVID going on, going forward. Good thing is Chile is vaccinating at a, at a good rate and, um, and the numbers in Chile are not as severe as what they are in Peru right now. Okay. Well, look, maybe we, we can talk about that because I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind talking about this. I just want to finish on the, on the number side of things first. So can, yeah. can you just Sorry. sort of outline the the type of money? I know you can't give me numbers yet because it's it's not yet nailed down, but in terms of we're, we're looking at obviously equity, we're looking at streaming. I mean, did, was, was a bought deal, you know, ever part of the, the consideration? That was the easy way out. A bought deal was the easy way out, and that's typically what people do. They go, okay, we're, we're announcing a, a financing package and here's a, an equity component and it's a bought deal done by a group of uh, um, bankers. In, in our case, we resisted that. and We did an overnight marketed deal. Why did we do that? Because I was very adamant that I wanted existing shareholders to participate in this financing. Typically in a bought deal, they get left out. And the company that does the board deal financing has no real control over who enters that book. Uh, it's up to the underwriter. So that's the reason we did it. There were some people that were reaching out, why are you doing this? You know, um, it's exactly that reason to get existing shareholders. Now, um, 
I'm very conscious of, of existing shareholders, um, you know, um, and, and we did get a, a good president's list together and uh, we got some good, um, you know, existing shareholders into the book and some new new institutions into, into this deal. I myself put in uh, $200,000 US. Um, one of my fellow directors put in uh, $160,000 US. That was Albrecht Schneider. Um, you know, so yeah, it was it was good to to get that done and, and keep some of our shareholders happy. Right, and and so that, but it done at roughly ten percent discount. Is that what was needed to get it? it? Was, uh, yeah, well, yeah. Well, that's debatable. <laughs> I mean, look at look at look, doing the financing. We do it at fifty two week lows. You yeah. know what can you? do? I mean, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Get the gun, shoot yourself. I don't know what, but. But, anyway, but, there, but there's a question, but there's a question, Alex. Uh, it's like how how do you because you could just say, do you know what? Golds had been off for the past four weeks. It'll come back up. We'll just sit sit this out for another two months. We'll just say to people, we're six, six weeks late. We've got a solution, but I tell you what, we're going to wait for another sixty days. Do you think the market would have punished you for that? Is that is that why you went ahead at? at oh, yeah, know, I, I, I think so. I think I think I think the market would have punished us for that because. That would have raised all sorts of uncertainties about this deal actually getting done. Not the equity, but the whole financing package. And I had that because we were six weeks late. I had people contacting me saying, is there a problem? You know, Houston, is there a problem? And I said, no, no, there's no problem. We're really working hard on getting the best possible terms that we can. And that's what we have done. Do you think if you'd Please. not done the foreign investment, foreign asset investment trust route, and gone straight to the solution you've ended up with, you would have pacified the bankers, you'd have pacified the market, because you'd have been there a lot sooner, and perhaps you could have got this done at market instead of ten percent Oh yeah, sure. I mean, the foreign asset income trust um, consumed a lot of our time during the process. Um, because it's never been done before. So it did delay us. But the good thing is that we've got the ingredients to do it. We could do one tomorrow um, because we've done all the background work. And let me tell you, as I've said before, we don't intend to be a one-asset company. Uh, We currently are. Uh, We hope through M&A that, you know, we will become part of something bigger with other assets and maybe some of those assets will be offshore to Canada that we can apply to a foreign asset income trust. That's that's what we're looking for. Um, but we've done all the hard work. So yes, you are, you are absolutely correct. The fate, as we call it, F-A-I-T, the fate uh, slowed us down. But uh, it's a really, really good solution. And I, I've got to say, if any CEOs are out there who've got a foreign asset that would like to explore that, contact Doug Pollitt and, uh, at Pollitt & Co in Toronto and have a chat with him because he can certainly help you and steer you in the right direction and give you the pros and cons of doing that exactly. Okay, if it's anything like a REIT, it, it, it sounds actually like a really good product, but, 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 but I want to try and understand, would, would you with hindsight have preferred to go on straight to the more conventional solution here? Has it cost you no. money by delaying things is what I'm asking. No, no, no. I, I think it was all part of the strategy was to um, 
really analyze and take our time to come up with the best possible solution. And I've got to say that even though the fate was our preferred solution, had the stars been in alignment um, and, and, and us not being a one asset company, then uh, we would have gone that route and uh, we'd be talking about something different right now. But no, it is what it is. Can I also just just quickly on, on, on Wheaton, obviously the way streamers, they, 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 they get in early and they're there till the very end. So are, are you happy? I, I know you're happy with getting Wheaton the name in there because they, you can get through their diligence, you can get through anything, quite frankly. But do you think it costs a little bit of money, a little bit more expensive than perhaps you wanted to at the beginning, but it gets the thing done and gets this thing up and going? And, and, and you know what? Um, Haytham Hodelay uh, runs their 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 business. I mean, uh, Randy Smallwood's the CEO, but uh, Haytham does most of the hard work. He's a technical guy, you know, really easy to talk to. <clears throat> His technical team below him, easy to talk to, easy to engage with. So if I had to pick a partner and uh, of any of those, I think we picked the right partner. They're, they're really good. They get it. They understand. It doesn't take time for them to, to understand. Let me tell you, I was shocked by some of the other streamers because a lot of the other streamers don't have internal technical teams. They, they rely on external experts. And let me tell you, most external experts are woeful. Woeful. I mean, unbelievably woeful and I got into some real shouting matches virtually uh, I'm glad these people you know we weren't in the same room as some of these people but um, you know just woeful so so I'm happy with we I'm happy with BMP as well uh, BMP guys get it uh, they love our project they can see the expansion potential for our project they want to be there for the whole ride forever when we need vanilla debt I'm sure that will be a preferred uh, financier, and uh, yeah, that's that's what we've got. So, what's, what's the total quantum of money raised if everyone does what they say they're yep. going so, to do? So, Wheaton is fifty million dollars in two tranches uh, on closing, which is when we sign the definitive agreement, which will be in a few weeks' time. Twenty-five million uh, balance on EIA approval, right? That's not construction permit. Um, and that's why we did this deal with Wheat because they were flexible enough to give us money early. And then um, uh, BMP will come in at uh, construction permit. Uh, construction permit, as I said, we're guiding March for the EIA approval. Um, we're estimating three to four months for construction permit after that. So in about August, July, August of the of next year, we'll have our construction permit. That's when BMP comes in, and that's when we do all the assembly work up on up at the mine site, get things together. Right now, we're going to do um, you know contractor mobilisation. We're going to build the camp, set up all the infrastructure that we need at the camp, get a few things done on site. The weather changes. We go into summer in September or so. Um, so you know we're gearing up for that. So. That was one of the other reasons for not holding this thing back. I mean, we've got some time constraints and some weather constraints that we want to we want to work into. Do you still get asked the water question? 
The what question? Sorry. Water question. Does that still happen? Yes. It does. Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. But you know what? We put we put part of that to bed. Um, and you haven't asked me yet, but I'm gonna I'm gonna launch into it. Is right. the metallurgical test results and the run of mine? Oh, that was coming uh, up. Don't worry. We put out a couple of a couple of weeks ago, um, and that was a prelude. That was another thing that was holding us back because all the financiers wanted to see that result, those results to the run of mine work. So unfortunately, we we thought that would be finished in April, but because of COVID, the big C word, uh, we were pushed out um, into into June. But anyway, um, the results came out, replicated what we were assuming at uh, single stage crush for run of mine. Um, this material is beautiful. We've simplified the whole process and um, um, taken the crusher out. Um, you know, there's no crusher, there's no agglomerator, <coughs> there's no stackers or conveyors. So this. When, when you talk about mining projects, and there's one that I was watching the other day, uh, it's in Argentina, belongs to a company, I'm not going to mention the company's name, it's just recently been built, and they're talking about all the issues they're having with their crushing, getting crushing going, and their agglomerator, and their stackers, and, and I'm going, that's the last thing you want to be thinking about, particularly at altitude. You know, we're at 4,500 metres. You want it to be a very simple earth-moving exercise. There's the ore body. Dig it up and put it on the pad. Keep doing that. Keep doing that. Don't complicate it with all these intermediate steps. So that's why we were very hell-bent on demonstrating run of mine. But in doing that, we used the same water, the retreated water from the facility that we're buying. Because a lot of people said, well, that's retreated shit. You know, is that going to, is that going to, uh, uh, leach and all that. Okay, yes, it is, but let's show you. So we did a pad, uh, 400 ton representative sample, and, and 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 it worked. And then the other thing was, oh, but altitude. You know, what's the impact of altitude? There is no impact on altitude to to leaching. Just so everybody knows, there isn't. But we did this test work at 3,200. Now the mine sites at 4,500, or the leach pads at 4,500. That's not going to give us any difference. So we've shown all that, but yes, you know, I've done a couple of meetings the last couple of days and, but you're tracking your water. What sort of challenges does that bring you? Um, not many, you know, it's 2,100 tonnes of water. We're gonna get it up the road in tanker trucks. And the reason we're doing it is not because we wanna do it forever, is we wanna get this project started. Isn't that a nice thing that we wanna to get to cash flow as quickly as possible? and not hold this project up, hoping we're going to get water from somewhere else in the ground, which takes time. We may get it. So, yes, I keep getting those questions, and I don't think a lot of those people will believe this until the bar of gold and the photo with the bar of gold is taken, and um, we can say, there you go, it worked. Anyway. Sorry for the rant. <laughs> no, but, but, no but, but it's important because if, if the question is still being asked, there's obviously some some doubt, doubt out there, and we've talked about it on numerous occasions. Um, but I say, until you start producing dirty gold, 
people aren't going to believe you. I mean, are, are people concerned about the size and the scale of this? Or do they do they believe the numbers oh, that yeah, are presented that. to date? Oh, you're only going to be you're only going to be producing a hundred thousand ounces per annum. How quickly can you expand that? It's like, well, that's not too bad, you know, starting run rate, but it's a starter project, um, and uh, um, it can be expanded. You know, the project will be looked at to be expanded. And we have always said it's all about water options. And we are finalising. There's a couple of options that we're finalising at the moment for um, subsurface water that belong to other people. And once we uh, negotiate terms on that, that water, we can finish a study on an expanded project, which will be likely in the order of eighty to 100,000 tonnes a day, so four to five times the size of what we're mining now, and we'll produce somewhere between 250 and 300,000 ounces of gold. Now, people probably won't believe me on that either, but that's the quantum that this project can grow. And the other interesting thing that came out of this financing that we just did, we got a, an inbound from a couple of big guys going, oh, so what are you what are you guys doing in Chile? You know, so you know, we are going to be the next new project developed in Chile. Now let's look at the gold business in Chile. Just sorry, Matt, I just want to digress a little bit. The gold business in Chile. How many listed companies are actually mining or developing in Chile? Four. Okay. The miner, one, Yamana Gold. Developers, Kinross with, oh shit, sorry about that. Kinross with um, La Coipa. Uh, Goldfields with, um, um, oh, I always miss their name, the project they're developing in, in Chile. Uh, yeah, anyway, Goldfields are, are building a project in Chile and Rio too, right? Where it, that's the only listed companies with gold mines in Chile. So um, Rio 2 is doing something quite unique in that country in amongst a bunch of big guys, right? So that's all I want to say. I get, I get where you're at. And we've had a good conversation about money. You're going to get some early from Wheaton. You've got the rest teed up. You know, when we, we're talking March and then maybe, you know, July, August next year. So all, all good. But the other big the elephant in the room here is, you know, what's going on in Chile politically. Now, we've, we've done a little bit of work in the background, so I've, I've got a view on that one. But what's your take on what's going on in country? Um, you know, I always say there's only one thing I can control is the execution and delivery of, of what we do as a miner. Um, the gold price, can't control that. Politics can't control politics. Um, would I be one of these CEOs and say, oh, don't worry about that, you know, we'll be fine? I don't know. You know, I, I just really don't know what the real impact will be. What we are seeing in Chile and Peru and, and probably the rest of the world, I mean, I, I think we should stop singling out Latin America, but is that taxes are going to go up. There's going to be, you know, governments wanting a bigger pie, uh, piece of the pie. They're seeing, you know, record uh, commodity prices, record precious metal prices, um, and we just got to adapt. 
the analogy I like to use is London Gold, right, with Fruta del Norte. You know, they went into Ecuador um, with what was considered to be a basket case um, uh, project, particularly to Kinross, because Kinross couldn't, couldn't do anything with it. And they had to negotiate with the government, give big slugs of taxes and percentages to the government. And they just went, okay, if that's what we've got to do, that's what we've got to do. And on they went. They built a $2.5 billion company out of that, right? So it's not the end of the world, right? Taxes will go up. How much? Are they going to go up as much as what's been in the press? I don't think so, but I've got no idea. But whatever happens, we're all going to have to live with it. I can't move the project from Chile to, to um, I don't know where, to Australia because, you know, the better conditions in Australia, it's, I'm, I'm in Chile, you know. So, so yes, there are changes afoot in Chile politically, uh, taxation-wise, but that's going to happen worldwide. And, um, and so I just got to live with it um, as a company. We just got to move on. It's, it's interesting, actually, because we, we, you know, we've spoken to a lot of companies in, in, in Chile, and as a consequence, wanted to try and understand a little bit, just a little bit. You know, I'm not a local. I'm not. I don't live there. But I'm just trying to understand by speaking to people who are nationals. And we spoke to um, president of the mining association. Obviously, he's very positive about his thoughts about going forward. But I think you know could be accused of talking his book. But he, he seems you know reasonably comfortable. Um, that business will, res- will resume and maybe there's a tax hike on, on producers at, so- at some point. What, what it will look like? His view, probably something in line with Australia, right? Because, but, you know, which, you know, you'll take that, I guess. Um, spoke to a lawyer, journalist, um, politician, and, and even a, an ambassador, a Chilean ambassador, to a certain country, shall remain nameless. But they all seem quite confident that the, f- the future would be positive for Chilean mining, at, at least, and certainly palatable to all those there and possibly for new foreign investment too. And I, I thought that was a sort of eye-opener because not all of those people we spoke to needed to talk up mining but just gave us a view from the ground, from what they're seeing, you know, what they're reading, et cetera, that there is a better political narrative going around, you know, and you you can't ignore that. But at the same time, there's got to be a realistic outcome to the the constitutional change and and some of the conditions that will be precedent with with the rewriting of that for foreign investment in in the country. So it's kind of of, more hopeful than uh, than not. you know, a lot of people expect that, you know, things have come to a screeching halt while this uncertainty is building up and all that. We're, we're good evidence of the fact that it's business as usual in Chile. We, You know, we've, we've been given permits to do certain things because we've been in a permitting process. So uh, the authorities haven't stopped working. We're in the middle of an EIA. They haven't stopped working. They haven't slowed down. They haven't done, you know, there's no visible impact to a company like us doing business in Chile. Um, so it's business as usual and we'll take whatever comes. Now, at the end of the day, the other point I'd like to make to the public is that both Wheaton Precious Metals 
and BNP, who finance companies all around the world, are happy to put their money into Chile at this point. So I think that should make the public feel relatively comfortable, not only about us, but about Chile. Um, and, um, you know, where that country will eventually go to. Yeah, no, it's, it's a point well made. Because my other sort of takeaway was this, this feeling, it, well, certainly from what I was hearing from these guys, like I said, I'm, I'm just some old gringo, right? So it was, it was a case of it's very sort of institutionally led in country. There's a kind of almost European, I'm not saying Europe's any better, I'm just saying it's a European feel to it because of the institutional, you know, rule of law and so forth. And I, I was slightly comforted, to be honest, if I, when I walked away from those conversations, uh, which I had over a series yeah, of I mean, you know, Chile, from a mining perspective, has always been referred to as the Nevada of South America, right, from, from a mining perspective. You're dead right. It's very mature. It's got a very mature industry. It's nationalised previously the copper business into Cadelco, uh, which has been a big success, which is a big revenue earner for the government. Um, you know, what this is all about in Chile right now is about social reform and it's about improving education, improving health and improving welfare. And you know what they're trying to become? They're trying to become Australia, Canada or the UK, <laughs> right? Because those three countries have all that, right? And people look at it in Chile and go, no, that's communism and socialism. No, it's not. They're just transitioning into Australia, Canada, and the UK. So, um, yeah, look, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I, and, and I'm not the sort of CEO that says, ah, forget about it. You know, we're going to be fine. I don't know. And, but all I do know is that our project makes money and is break even, well, let's say it breaks even at about 1,100 gold, right? So apart from the gold price being at $1,800 and having been there on average for the last two years, which is a nice thing, I think people shouldn't lose sight of that, is that I've got a lot of buffer in this project to take additional taxes and whatever, and to take a string from Wheaton and whatever. What that does is put pressure on me to get our ASIC, which is currently sitting at $1,000, to something lower, 900, 800. That's our job. That's what we control. That's why we took the crusher out. That's why we're simplifying this project is to make it as bulletproof and as low cost as we can possibly do. That's our job. That's what we control. But politics, taxes, gold price, I, I, you know, people... I hate it when you see CEOs asked on interviews, can you, now can you give me your uh, prognosis for the gold price going forward? They should all shut up and say, I've got no clue. But they all go, oh yeah, you know, $3,000, you know, because of this and because of inflation. They all become economists at that, at that time of the interview and it's bullshit because at the end of the day, they're not economists. Control what you can control. Okay, I agree with that. It made me smile actually. Um, but with regard with regards to what's going on in country, you feel that although you don't know the specific outcome, you don't know if taxes will be raised or what they'll be raised to. Do you feel that the government is there to help 
foreign investment in mining in their country and therefore make it, if there's a rise, it'll be comparable to an Australia, comparable to a Canada. Yeah, I think I think that I think whatever government will be pro business and pro mining. I think a lot of people get lost on that, right? Um, it's like what's happening in Ecuador. They all go, "Well, new government, pro mining, fantastic, yeah, great." But you don't get your license to mine from the government. You know where you get it from? From the community on the ground, social. There, um, unless you can do that, you're screwed, right? You can have the most positive government for investment or whatever, but the government will never override people on a social basis. So if you can't get social license for your mining project, wherever it is around the world, irrespective of how friendly the government is, you'll never get the project off the ground. Amen. Okay, Alex. Thanks for the update. Really appreciate you coming on. You, we need you on way more. You're way, way too much fun. Yeah, not I'm one of these guys that don't want to come on just for the sake of coming on. Um, you know, I'm not very photogenic. Um, you got nice shirts, though. Nice shirts. I try and wear a different shirt every time. I've got my Miami shirt on. But, you know, I really appreciate it. And, uh, and, and I only want to come on when I've got something to say. Appreciate your invites to panels and things like that. But... Uh, yeah, you, you'll see me again when I've got something positive and, 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 and you know, significant to talk about in respect to Rio 2. Good man. May I ask one last question? It's nothing to do with Rio 2. It's nothing to do with Chile. It's to do with Peru. You live there, Lima. Well, I know you're not there right now, but you live there. Your family's there. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? In, in the context of mining companies being able to do business in Peru, uh, very uncertain times, um, I guess you've got to say. Um, you know, we've got a, a leftist government that's just about to be sworn in, um, Peru Libre, um, who has as their nominee for president, Pedro Castillo. Um, but it's not Pedro Castillo that we're worried about as, as Peruvian residents. It's the people behind him. And there are some very, very bad people behind that guy. Uh, people connected to the Shining Path, people that have, um, you know, uh, connected to the Shining Path and also have legal cases against them related to terrorism. Uh, people that are involved in corruption charges and, and being tried for that. So I'm, it's a very sad situation because Pedro Castillo was put in front of this He's the guy, the guy with the hat, the humble guy from the mountains, you know, and he's been put there so that people can't target him for fear of being called racist or, or, or whatever, right? But it's not him. It's the party and their uh, plans for the country. And those guys behind him, the president of the party, Vladimir Saron, is a self-stated communist, Leninist, Marxist. He, he has said that. And he loves what's happening in Cuba. He loves the way Cuba's run politically and he loves the way Venezuela's run politically. Now, when you've got those sorts of people there, it's very uncertain. 
A lot of people say, oh, but Pedro Castillo will be like uh, Ollanta Humala back in 2011, who started off on the left and went to the centre. Great. Ollanta Humala was the leader of his party. Pedro Castillo is not the leader of Peru Libre. He's the front man. He's the Trojan horse in my, my, my terms. It's the people behind him. Now, hopefully they're there for the next five years. There's another presidential election and we say goodbye and whatever happens during the next five years, we just bear and, and, and we roll on. But they're looking to change the constitution and, and I'm sure they're looking to do, if they like Cuba and Venezuela, will try and change the term of the presidency to an open-ended term. If they do that, then we're in big trouble. Um, so for me, and, and, and I can tell you, over the last few weeks leading up to this announcement of Frederick Castillo, $13 billion of private money belonging to people like me and you know, uh, other people in, in the country have left. That 13 billion has been shipped offshore. Um, there is no invest asset, asset prices. Uh, real estate has halved. The Peruvian soul has gone up from three and a half, uh, 3.5 to four, uh, with predictions that if things go bad, it will go up to six to six and a half. So for me, right now, it's a time of just waiting to see what happens. And I think that'll take two years. It's not gonna happen in three months because these guys may put things in front of them that make them look like they're benign. But I think it's time, and I think a two year period, um, that we should all wait and see what happens in Peru. We nearly bought an asset in Peru just recently. We dodged the bullet. I mean, it fell apart, the deal fell apart, we didn't get it, and uh, we were pissed off. But at the end of the day, <laughs> I think we we're very, very happy that we dodged the bullet because I, I just see Peru as being very difficult from an investability perspective for the next couple of years. And it's sad, I live there, I continue to live there, and, um, but this is not like Oyanta Humala, please. This is not like it. And if any CEO gets up on this show and says, ah, don't worry about it, everything's gonna be fine, I wouldn't invest in their company. <laughs> so that's my, that's my honest opinion. I, I, I wish I could say, look, a few years ago when I was doing Rio Alto, I was saying to people, Peru is the number one destination for mining investment in, 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 in Latin America. Because it was back 10 years ago. Right now, I can't say that. I can't put my hand on my heart and say that. I got no idea what Peru is going to look like in two years time. Got to wait. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.